This morning, I want us to take a look at the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. And you may say, why in the world do you want to talk about that this morning? That is a great question that you are having in your minds, staring at me. Well, some of it is just logistics. Some of it just boils down to practicality. And what I mean by that is, with the events of the last couple of weeks um, here at Renew and what we had last night and yesterday... My time was a little bit spread out, but um, a couple weeks ago, a friend of mine had asked me if I would help her outline the parable of the ten virgins for her, because she was going to be sharing it with a women's ministry, and she knew that she would need some sort of structure to this and some sort of explanation, so I put together this outline with her and kind of shared it so that she would know maybe where she could go with that. So I had this kind of in the hopper, and so sometimes when schedules get tight, you know, we can recall something that we've got kind of uh, on the mind. The other reason is because just last week, in talking with Pastor Ed DeZago, the idea or the principle of Jesus speaking in parables came up in our conversation with him. And we specifically commented, which we'll come back to here this morning, that Jesus speaking in parables ultimately became a judgment on those who had already hardened their hearts towards him and who were refusing to accept the message that he had. And so he, his public ministry shifted at some point around Matthew 13 from speaking plainly to the people to then speaking in parables. So that was with um, Pastor Ed. And then lastly, we know that there is conflict going on overseas right now. There's always conflict going on, but you all know that we have heavy hearts as believers for Israel right now and, and the activity that's taking place over in the Middle East. And so I'm not here to say that the end is coming or near necessarily. But we do know that Jesus has promised that as his return is nearing, things will begin to heat up around the world. He tells us there will be birth pangs, and there will be groanings, and there will be things and signs that begin to point towards his return. So I'm not standing here telling you that he's coming back tomorrow. I'm not saying that. There are many things that need to take place, as we learned in our theology study of eschatology that Michael brought to us. There are things that need to take place before he returns. However, however, you all know that it's on the hearts and the minds of believers and people all over the world that what we're seeing in the Middle East right now could very well be looking like things are ramping up. We don't know. We don't know. So, the parable of the ten virgins really is a parable about Jesus' return. And ultimately, uh, I don't remember how many verses it is, but it's not very long And there's not a whole lot to dissect really to it, other than when you get to the end of it, the point is, be ready. Just like the song says, be ready because Jesus is coming back. That is the point of the parable. And that brings me to another point that I wanted to kind of highlight for us this morning, is what parables seek to do. How are we to understand parables? How are we to treat them? How are we to approach them when we read parables? Well... There can be two extremes when people approach the parables. The one extreme is to simply chalk it up as allegorical, some illustration, some wise fable. And just think about how that reduces what Jesus said to just some simple platitude. So at one extreme, we can treat them 
as being way less than what they really are. And that's certainly not appropriate at all. But then at the other extreme, what you'll oftentimes see and hear people do, and you've probably heard this from the platform before, but people will say, oh, parables are really, really mysterious. They're, they're really hard to understand, and they're tricky, and God was purposefully trying to trick people and be mysterious in its meaning. Well, that also, as a pendulum swing to the other spectrum, is not appropriate either. Nor should we land, you guys hear us, give illustrations from time to time when we're giving a message. Uh, and we use illustrations from time to time to help maybe prove a point or support uh, something that we're trying to explain. Well, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, it's important to do illustrations in your sermons because Jesus used illustrations and Jesus used parables. There is a big difference between the nuggets of truth that God gave to his son and that God gave to prophets of the Old Testament to reveal truths about the kingdom of heaven that God was implanting and, and, and hiding in there from what we do here on the platform, which is to simply give an illustration that helps you understand a point that we're trying to make. Does that make sense? Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God used parables to speak truths. Go to Psalm 78, if you would. Keep your finger, obviously, in Matthew 25, but turn to Psalm 78, if you would. We're going to look at verse 2, right at the beginning. Psalm 78, verses 2 through 4. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter... Dark savings, sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength, and his wondrous works that he has done. An example of a parable with these godly truths that God has packaged in, that have been designed to reveal something about himself or the kingdom of heaven. Now turn back to Matthew. I mentioned that parables are not necessarily mysterious. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Nor are they little fables that were to just chalk up as fun, lighthearted riddles. In Matthew chapter 13, I referenced this earlier, we learn partly why Jesus began to speak this way. Start in verse 10 with me. We'll go from 10 to 17. And the disciples came and said to him, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you now talking to the masses with these seemingly different stories than you have spoken before? And And he answered and he said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, Jesus says, I speak to them in parables, because... While seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand... 
And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. Now, You all remember the story of Moses and Pharaoh? We have a similar thing that happens there where you have sometimes the text tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and a couple of times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Turn with me if we would to Romans and I'll pull this all together for a moment. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 18. 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of the corruptible man of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now watch. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed for every man. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women, exchanged the natural functions for that which is unnatural. Jump down, um, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, any longer, God gave them over to the depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, um, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. Jump down to verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now jump back to Matthew chapter 25. <coughs> We looked at those passages in Matthew 13 and and Romans, and I referenced Moses and Pharaoh because what you see there are examples of mankind hearing the truth of God, hardening their hearts in disbelief, and God then handing them over to their desires, to their depraved minds, to their sinful nature. Yes, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Yes, Jesus began to spoke in parables so that the Pharisees and naysayers who sat on the fringes of the audiences, you know, when Jesus was speaking to the masses, you could just kind of imagine it, right? That he's standing there wherever he may have been in, 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 the, in, the, in the temple courts and out on the hillsides, and you've got people that have just gathered and congregated to hear these, this great wisdom from this great teacher, But you've also got those Pharisees and those religious leaders who kind of came out also in their robes and their garments and they're just kind of standing in the back, you know, and they're there for a different purpose. 
They're there to hear him, but they want to entrap him. They want to hear him slip up and say something that they can use to nail him. They've already cast judgment. They've already made a decision about Jesus in their hearts. They're not there to hear the wisdom that he has. They're there to find something that they can charge him with and get rid of him. Jesus knows this, and so he says to his audience and then ultimately to his disciples later when they come they say why do you speak to them in parables now why are you doing this in the way of stories and not speaking plainly and so Jesus says because those who have already hardened their hearts they're not going to know they will not understand these truths that I'm packaging in these stories in these parables for them but for you guys For you who do not have hard hearts, for you who come to me afterwards in private and say, Hey, Jesus, what what was that about? What, What do you mean about wheat and weeds and a mustard seed and parable of ten virgins and fish in a net and goats and sheep? Jesus, what are you talking about? See, they sought to find the meaning. And anybody in the crowds also who sought to find the truth in what Jesus was saying and to learn about the kingdom of God could stick around and invest their time and their attention. They could come find him later and afterwards and they could ask. And to them, he says, the truths of the kingdom of God have been given. You are being responsible with what God has blessed you with so far. You shall be given more. But to those who have hard hearts, it became a form of judgment. When you have shut down The reality, just as in Romans, Paul writes, when you've rejected what you know to be true about God and have exchanged it for a lie, and your wisdom has now become foolishness, therefore God will give you over to the desires of your heart. You have a depraved mind, a reprobate mind, that's what you're going to get. And so parables ultimately became a form of judgment for those who had already made a decision. Now, another thing about this parable in chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, which we haven't even read yet, is that this gets packaged into a larger sermon or message, which is called the Olivet Discourse. How many of you are familiar with that term, the Olivet Discourse? Matt felt like he should just raise my hand and, and patronize me, and I appreciate that. So, uh, you know. This is a message or a sermon that, that, that Jesus gave after being in the, in the temple and, and, and retreating out to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And he speaks at great length, mostly, mostly about what is yet to come, specifically relating to Israel itself and Jerusalem, but then ultimately his return and his second coming. And so from Matthew 24 through Matthew 25 is called the Olivet Discourse, and we have many parables that occur in here. Um, And so you see, look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 1, we see what Jesus is essentially responding to when he gives this series of parables. It says, And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to uh, the point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one of the stones shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. So Jesus has shared this truth about what is going to happen, okay? And the follow-up question that they have is in verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So he's just told them 
leaving the temple, heading up to the Mount of Olives. All these stones and all this beauty and all this great architecture, this pains me, all this great architecture is not going to be here in the way that you know it very soon. No stone is going to be left unturned. It's going to be rubble. And their follow-up question is, what are you talking about and when is this going to happen? In verse 3. When are we to expect this? And what ends up happening in the Olivet Discourse after that is an answer and a response to when this will take place. And as I mentioned, there will be an immediate. In, in AD 70, when Jerusalem gets destroyed and set fire, so that's an immediate fulfillment but then there's also the future fulfillment of Jesus' ultimate return and second coming. So, we have, throughout this and towards the end, we have what some might say four or five parables. And I say four or five because depending on the translation that you might be reading, it might refer to something that Jesus is going to say as a parable and it might not. Some of the translations just render them different. Some have subheadings that will simply say the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, some may say um, the parable of the wise servant, and some may not. So we'll just simply say that there are four to five stories, parables here, that Jesus uses to reveal truths about his second coming. And I'll just give you kind of a brief rundown. The first is going to be the parable of the fig tree. And Jesus uses that um, as an example of knowing and being alert that signs will begin to come that the end is near. He talks about when the fig tree blooms and leaves, then you know that summer is coming. So in the same way that the fig tree will reveal the season and is very predictable, there are going to be signs and things that come that will point you to my return. Will you know exactly? No, when we're going to get to that. But the season is coming. The second is going to be the uh, parable or the story of the wise, faithful servant. And what he reveals there is the principle that while the master is gone away from the house, the wise and faithful servant cares for the master's estate as a great steward, but a wicked servant doesn't. And when the master comes back, he's frustrated and he's mad because that wicked servant was like, well, my master is gone and who knows how long he's going to be gone. Maybe he returns, maybe he doesn't. And he behaves that way. But a faithful, wise servant cares for his master's house and estate while gone. Is not not what Jesus has called us to do? Has Jesus not asked us to care for what he has entrusted to us until he returns? Absolutely. The third is the parable of the virgins. We'll come back to that, but this is essentially warning of Christ's return to be ready. That's the song we sang. The parable of the ten virgins is going to be all about being ready because he may come at any moment. The fourth is the parable of the talents. In other words, we will all be held accountable and have to give account for the way in which we operated, exercised, and displayed the talents and the resources that he had entrusted to us. So not unlike the faithful, wise servant entrusting to care for the master's house, but also the gifts and abilities and the resources that have been given to us. You know, we have a range of incomes here. We have a range of talents. We have a range of skills just here in our small congregation at Renew. And so each one of us, though we will be with Jesus for eternity and and live with him forever, will give an account for how we stewarded that which he had entrusted to us. 
how, did, how are you using the gifts that he's given to you? How are you using the resources that he's given to you? Is it to glorify him and honor him while he's gone, until he returns? And then the last, and you can see how this is progressive. Can you see how even in his response to when will these things occur, he's getting progressive and he ultimately ends with a story or parable about the sheep and the goats. Where he says, God is going to separate the sheep and the goats. We are sheep, praise Jesus. We are sheep. But there are going to be goats which he casts out from his presence. Non-believers. So you see that all of this is Jesus' response to, when's this stuff going to happen? And so his response is in part timing, but also really behavior, right? And think about the church today. Think about how concerned we get about when this stuff's going to happen. Man, we love the timelines. And it's important, they are. But man, we just want to guess and try to figure out and dissect it. And we want to know exactly when this is going to happen. And I'm just throwing this out on the cuff. I hadn't thought about this. But I believe one of the things that we've just seen is that Jesus is actually cautioning more about behavior and less about timeline. I believe that Jesus' answer to when will these things happen actually gives us more about behavior and how we are to conduct ourselves than actual timeline, if that makes sense. In other words, look, I'll tell you there's going to be a season, I'm going to tell you there's going to be signs, and there's going to be things that point to my return. You're not going to know the exact hour or the day when that is. But let me tell you something more. Let me tell you what's more important. More important is how you behave until I return. How are you caring for, for the, the Father's resources that he's entrusted to you? How, what kind of a steward have you been? And will you be ready? When I return, what will I find you doing? And so, with regards to the time, Jesus, before he gives the parable of the ten virgins, has addressed, I think, five times about his return. In verse 36 of chapter 24, he says, Only God the Father knows when Jesus will return. Not men, not angels, not Jesus himself. Verse 42 of chapter 24, Watch, for you do not know what hour the Lord may come. Chapter 24, verse 44, Be ready, because the Son of Man will come when you least expect. Chapter 24, verse 50, I will return when men do not expect me. So he clearly warns that his return will mean judgment for the world and no one will know when that hour will be, but we are to be ready for his return. Alright, now you guys are like, I thought we were going to talk about the parable of the ten virgins this morning. When are we going to read this parable? Let's read it now. (laughs) I told you last night, all I had was an outline and not a lot put together on this, okay? And I'm pulling this out from a couple weeks ago. Verse 1, chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. That is a really important point right there. He he is very specific that five were foolish and five were wise or prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent or wise took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom! Come out and meet him! He's here! (sighs) 
And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are running out. They're going to go out. We don't have any more fuel. Please help us. We all want to go out and see the bridegroom who is coming. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there won't be enough for us and you also. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, open up, open up, let us come in too. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. You weren't here when I came. I don't know who you are. I'm not letting you in. So be on the alert then, Jesus says, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And I said that he had said that about five times prior in this Olivet Discourse. That would you call this the sixth time, right? And so, why does Jesus use an illustration of a wedding? Um, because he's Jesus. Because we see woven throughout Scripture the illustration of marriage between a man and a wife, a husband and a wife, compared to Jesus' relationship with the church. We know that throughout Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the groom or the bridegroom, and the church is referred to as his bride. It's a very consistent theme throughout. But the other thing is, it describes a very real potential that some of these ladies who went out to meet in the very customary fashion You see, weddings in the Near East ancient culture were often like a week-long celebration. And that followed a a year-longer betrothal. Now, if you've read Michael's book, you understand the importance of what the betrothal period was like. I mean, that was like a sealed deal. That was, you know, two fathers who had possibly arranged a marriage... And this was contractual. And by the time you get to the wedding ceremony itself, that just becomes the ceiling of what had already been committed, essentially. And so this year-long process for the guy is about getting his house ready, getting his estate ready to receive this bride that has been promised to him. We see how important the betrothal period is in the example of Joseph and Mary, right? They hadn't had their week-long ceremony celebration yet with all of the town involved, but yet the text tells us that Joseph had in mind to divorce his wife quietly. Well, that was because the betrothal period that they were in was as tight as a marriage, essentially. The ceremony just becomes the celebration and consummation of it. There's another consummation later, but... Make sense? And so what would often happen, because the whole town was involved, and because it was a week long, you would have the groom come and invite these women to be a part of the celebration. It was this great pomp and circumstance on his arrival and his announcement, and it was this great part of the wedding for him to invite women to this ceremony. And so Jesus is likening this practice of Near East ancient culture weddings that were part of a whole town that were a week long and that represented the bridegroom coming into town to receive his bride and along with inviting young ladies to be a part of this celebration. Now the other thing I didn't mention earlier when I talked about how we should interpret parables is that parables usually have one really, really important meaning. One really important truth that's being communicated. 
And oftentimes what you'll see in the contemporary church, you'll find pastors and leaders who just really want to kind of get creative with parables and they want to act like they've just got some new little nugget that nobody else has seen, that God has shared some sort of supernatural revelation with them that nobody else has ever seen before. And they'll start getting into all the details of the parables and they'll start telling you that this detail means this and that and put all this extra meaning on top of it and that's not true. Parables usually exist to communicate one primary truth. And we're not to go seeking and find all kinds of extraneous details and information in them. You know, when Jesus talks about the fish that gets separated, you know, they come in a net. All right. When Jesus talks about the parable of the sower and the four soils, look, there's nothing wrong with a pastor getting up and saying, hey, look, there's basically a 25% success rate when you're out evangelizing and witnessing. Nothing wrong with that. But to get into all kinds of extra meaning and detail about every little piece of information is not necessarily the point of a parable. And I might say that you know, about these virgins. Is it important that they're virgins? Maybe, maybe not. It's young ladies that are being invited to a wedding ceremony. And what's important is that half of them are wise and take extra flasks of oil for their lamps because it's dark, it's night, and they're waiting for this groom coming into town to announce his presence and to invite. And five are foolish they don't take extra oil. They've got just enough, maybe, to get them partway through the night. And at the moment that it really matters, they don't have enough. And they've got to run to the hardware store. You know, I don't know if you guys have... I mean guys, the men in the room, the husbands, thinking about this idea of getting your house in order and your house ready for this ceremony. I was actually refinishing floors the week of our wedding. I put down that last layer of sealer like, I think it was like two days before our ceremony so that it would be ready when Susan finally moved in. And so Jesus, in verse 1 there, he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps. Then, in other words, when I return, going back to chapter 24, verse 3, when is this going to happen, Jesus? Then. When I come back, it's going to look a lot like a wedding ceremony. It's going to look a lot like a groom who comes and invites those who are ready to this wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation tells us. If I remember, we'll come back and read that. And so he says, at that moment, that's what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. At that moment, the kingdom of heaven is going to look like a wedding and a groom who has come to town is announcing his presence and those women who were so excited to meet him, only half are going to be ready. You know, the church, especially in the Western Hemisphere, half of the church is going to be ready and half isn't. It's kind of a sobering reality. Churches are filled with warm bodies and the pews have people sitting in them. But probably half are actually ready for Jesus' return. Half of those are going to be weeds. Half of those are going to be bad fish. Half of those are going to be goats. And so, verses 2 through 13. Five of them were foolish. Five were prudent. And so we see the same in our churches today. Not everyone in church is wise. Uh, Many are foolish. Not everyone in church is saved. Many are going through the motions. Many 
are taking their lamps out because that's the thing you do in church. Many have their lamps lit and many are going alongside the wise for the express purpose of welcoming the groom when he comes. But when it's time, we find that they're not ready. And you know the other thing? I don't know how this would look or if this is actually even possible. But one of the examples, and again, not reading too much into the detail, but the foolish ladies said, give us some of your oil, please. We're not going to have enough. And the wise said, we give you ours, we're not going to have enough. No way, no way are we missing that party. We hear the music on the other side of those doors. We hear the bass, boom, boom, boom. Like, we're getting in there. We are not going to sacrifice any of our resources and our oil for you and risk the, the potential of us not getting in. I say that to say, nobody in the church gets to ride in the coattails of somebody else's faith. That's sobering. No unbeliever gets to link themselves and unite themselves so tightly with the believer that you're going to get drug in by proxy. It ain't going to happen. And kids, we have a saved congregation here, which is a wonderful, easy message to give to a saved congregation. But you guys don't get in based on the faith of your parents. No matter how spiritual and awesome your parents might be, and and how holy they may look, you don't get in on their faith. Your, Your invitation from the groom is because of your own faith or lack thereof. The account that you kids will have to give before Jesus for how you stewarded that which he gave to you, your talents, your attributes, your resources, will be your own account and not that of your parents. And so the foolish virgins didn't get to link their lamps and their flasks to the wise ones and somehow make it in. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 if you would. We're almost done. Second Corinthians chapter thirteen. You know, sometimes when I have these references and I'm flipping there, I'm actually praying that I got the reference correct. I'm actually like, does 2 Corinthians have 13 chapters? I sure hope it does when I get there before you all. <clears throat> um, unlike Ed Zago, who just gives it to you. You know, I'm, I'm going to make sure that we navigate there and have read it, because um, <clears throat> I can't do it from memory. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? I said to our youth, but really to every one of us, test ourselves. We don't get in based on somebody else's faith. I'll jump back to Matthew chapter 25. Look at verse 13 as we pull this together. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This is it. This is the culmination. The warning and the caution was to be ready, and the reason he gives yet again in this Olivet Discourse is because you do not know the day or the hour 
You will not know when Jesus comes. You may know the season, and you may be getting ready, and it may look like his return is near. Nothing wrong with that. That's what we're called to be on the alert for. But when he comes, he comes quickly, he comes swiftly, and we're to be ready for him. I think this is a challenge to the church. It's certainly a challenge in regards to belief and unbelief. And salvation versus eternal condemnation. That's clear. That is obviously clear that the command and the call is to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But as we look at a group of believers like ourselves, I think the command and the, the implorement, if you will, gets extended to our behavior. What as believers do our lives look like at that moment when Jesus returns? They were waiting eagerly with him with their lamps trimmed and lit. But what does that look like practically for us? Are we going to be embarrassed when Jesus returns because of what we might be doing at the moment? How do we handle our idle time, as an example? I'm not talking about scheduled rest and the time that God calls us to observe the Sabbath and reflect on his goodness and things like that. Naps are important. Rest is important. But then there's that idle time where maybe it isn't the most God-honoring and glorifying. Maybe... Maybe we're sitting here just swiping and scrolling a little too much. I'm not picking on this, but I am saying, what do you want to be found doing when Jesus returns? As a church. As a believer. Not one who is concerned about making it in or not, but when the bridegroom announces his presence and is giving the invitation, what are you doing? Friday night at our building... We had um, a group of charismatic Catholics holding a worship service, which they do once a month. And the gentleman who was speaking said something kind of off the cuff, which I actually really appreciated. And I pulled him aside afterwards and said that was really good. I don't think it was planned. I think it just came out. And he said, you know, he said, the church, and he was referring to the Catholic church specifically, but it applies to all of us. He said, the church really ought to start having fewer potlucks and more prayer meetings. I thought, that's good. That's kind of That's kind of good. I'm not picking on us here. We have our monthly gatherings and it's a great opportunity, a great time for fellowship. And that's really important. And I believe that scripture commands us to do that, to come together and break bread. And I believe the early church gave us examples of that, that they came together and they broke bread and they opened up the word and they fellowshiped with each other. That is great. But we also know when there's getting together for the sake of getting together and maybe God isn't necessarily the focus and And we're forgetting the things that he has also called us to, which is intercession and lifting up the needs of the saints and the needs of unbelievers for the purpose of salvation, that they might come to a saving relationship in Christ Jesus. And therefore, a statement like, fewer potlucks and more prayer meetings is apropos. Michael and I have been texting this week, and... And Matt has been included on some of those. Michael's had some great opportunities that the Lord is using him to witness to others. Sometimes it's a believer who has walked away from church for a period and needs to get plugged back in. Sometimes it's somebody who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And and the Lord is really, really using him outside of the church right now, which is just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing, which is great. Shouldn't we all have a burden? I'm not lifting him up. I'm just simply saying he is a recent contemporary example of God working through us, through him. But that should be true of all of us. We should all have a burden and a, ha- a hard heart, not hard, a, a, um, a heart that is 
burdened for the lost, for those who don't know Jesus, or for those we see not walking as believers in the ways that they should be or could be. Now, the last thing. Just turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 6. We'll just do three verses, 6 through 9. 19, 6 through 9. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, what we should be doing, what we should be found doing when he returns. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. There will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. So just as the illustration and the principle of marriage is woven through Scripture to reveal God's loyalty to His people, and just as Jesus refers to Himself as the bridegroom who returns for His bride and for the church, we see that we will one day be joining Him in the marriage ceremony and a feast of the Lamb. How awesome will that be?